a gap here. So um, we, we, yeah, so we've got the government or uh, marriage instituted in Genesis. And then we have uh, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 8 through 11 at the end there of, of Noah's flood. We see the institution of government. And then in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, we see the institution of the church. And these three function as the bedrock of a stable society. Um, that you have uh, family units, that you have a, a government which presides over uh, um, um, sovereign nations, and then you have the church uh, which forms the basis for instruction in God and in righteousness. So the, the first established principle of marriage is that marriage is between one man and one woman. We see that in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. The image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And uh, in, in the, the, uh, the second part there, marriage forms an autonomous family unit. You see in Genesis 2.24, says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Jesus speaks of this as well in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, still on that first page there, uh, the verse in between. Jesus, uh, as he, he had a question, there was a question posed to him about divorce, and um, his answer was, Have you not read that, which, uh, he, that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain, or two, shall, become one, shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And so this is the basis that we have for what Orthodox Christianity believes about marriage. We do not believe that marriage is an institution of the government. We believe that marriage is an institution of God. Now, the government has... Um, instituted a, a form of, of recognition for marriage, right, for tax purposes, for, for all of these sorts of things. And the government has a right to do that, and the government has a right to define that however they want. Uh, unfortunately, though, they're using the same word, that is the institution that God has ordained, which is marriage, at which point um, you're blurring the distinctives between what God has ordained and, and what God recognizes and what man has ordained and what man recognizes. Uh, so this is, it is for this reason that, uh, particularly as we talk about the idea of, of homosexual marriage and such, that that becomes a, a tension point in the church, is because we read in, back in Genesis, we read of Jesus' teachings, and we see that God created marriage, and if God's the one that created it, then God has the right to define it. And if God has the right to define it, then man does not have the right to redefine it simply because he doesn't like what God made. As with anything, um, man does not simply reserve the right to redefine uh, what God has defined simply because he doesn't like the way God defined it. And that's where that, that's that sticking point, that contention point in society, between society and, and, and church, as it were, uh, an orthodox religion uh, in regard to uh, the, the marriage, the institution of marriage itself. Um, it could be argued on this point that maybe government should get out of the marriage game altogether and not offer any sort of special... Uh, the, the reason why they do offer tax breaks and such is because government er, back in the day recognized that stable families and strong families make for strong societies. And this is, this is without, uh, without, without a question true. I was talking to a guy in the jail uh, yesterday 
and he he's uh, he's a former Marine, served for 20 years, and uh, he's uh, now in the jail for for some things, primarily uh, his temper, and because he's a dangerous guy, they're they're being very careful with him. He was talking about how he's listening to the news, and if you you know if if, if you listen to the news today, you you realize that everything about the news is attempting to divide, right? Especially along racial lines, and this is and 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 he's a black guy, and so he's talking about how his eyes are being opened to how everything is about race today, and uh, he's starting to get that that kind of that victim mentality, and and uh, he he brought up the statistic about the. The, the number of, of black men incarcerated as per the number of black men in population and how it's, it's significantly higher. And I encouraged him to look at a different correlation, that if you look at the correlation between people in jails and prisons and single parent households, particularly single mother households, the correlation there is significantly closer. And we might understand that actually the single parent household situation, the single mom particularly where the dad has abandoned his role as father um, does far more to cause problems as far as incarceration is concerned than particularly things such as race and whatnot so um, we, we see that government is recognizing the value of the institution of marriage as a bedrock of society and they want to reward that and that's not necessarily a bad thing but when it starts to muddy the waters in, a, in, a, in an unrighteous society, well, maybe it's time for the government just to get out of the marriage business altogether. And those are some of the debates that, that go back and forth. Um, but marriage, as is defined in the Bible, and remember, that's what we're doing here, right? We're just saying, what does the Bible say? And if we're taking what the Bible says and just believing the Bible, marriage is one man, one woman, and it's for life. And that's what the Bible says. Uh, marriage forms an autonomous family unit apart from parental authority. We read that verse in Genesis 2.24 that man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves unto his wife and they too become one flesh. The idea is that when they're an, once they become an, a, a, a unit, they become an independent family unit of their own. They are no longer under the authority of their parents in the way that they were otherwise. And this is the only actual break that we see in the Bible from parental authority. And this is something, again, that as far as society and culture goes, that's pretty far out in our culture. The idea that a, a child, particularly a daughter, should stay under the parental authority of her parents until such time as she, until such time as she transitions to a husband. Um, but that is the only biblical break that we actually see. Now, we can talk about uh, other scenarios and whatnot, but that's what we see in the Bible. That's what the Bible says, and that they become one flesh. So in the eyes of God... The married unit is a single unit. And that's important because that means that spiritually speaking, my wife and I are, are, are semi-codependent. She has her spiritual life. I have my spiritual life, certainly. But there is a codependency, spiritually speaking, between my wife and I as God regards us as one flesh, as God regards us as one entity, the, the, the unit of marriage. And, and uh, this, again, is one of the reasons why... Uh, historically, divorce has been uh, something that the church has said, no, this is not right. Because you are, what Jesus says, what God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And that is his answer to, should a man divorce his wife? Then, he go, then there's a scenario that goes on past that. We can talk about that if we want to talk about, uh, and I've actually got quite a write-up on that. I, I, if I'd have been thinking, I'd have brought it tonight. But I do have a, a write-up that I've made on that. Um, that answers a lot of the questions as far as how um, 
the church relates to the concept of divorce, particularly in a society where divorce is not just common but pervasive, right? And um, it is a huge problem. It's a huge problem not just from the standpoint of spiritually and biblically, but it's a huge problem fa- familially, if I can if I can say that. Um, it, it just it, it you know it it causes a lot of problems to the home, to the to the family, to children in particular, right? So. Um, that's that's the principle, and and as, as we always try to start principally, right? We we start on the principles, and then we build up. So from there, we talk about the structures, responsibilities, and relationships of the Christian family. Before I do that, are there any questions or thoughts on 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 that? Okay, um, what I've what I've done here is I've given you several verses, and I've numbered them, and then. Uh, after all of these several pages of verses that talk about various roles of men and women and such, then I give you each individual in the family, the man, the husband, the uh, woman, the wife, and then the children. And next to each of these, I give you a number, and that number correlates to the verses, to the block of verses that apply to that particular topic. So um, I'm going to skip to the topics on page 5 starts on the very bottom of page 5, man. And the Bible says, first off, that man is to be the head of his home. Ephesians 5 is one of several passages, in fact, that speak on this. Uh, Ephesians 5, um, let's see, uh, 27 to 32 is what I give you there. So that's that's block number 1, and starting in verse 27, um, the Bible says, in regard to Christ that he might sanctify and cleanse the church with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having uh, spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth uh, his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother... uh, and be joined into his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. And so we see this idea here that the husband is intended to cherish, to care for, to provide for the wife. Um, let me see if I have an, the other passage on here. And if not, I'm, I'm probably going to get my Bible and I'll, I'll give it to you. Um, yeah, let me let me go get my Bible here. I'm gonna give you another passage. <clears throat> well, I don't know that that one. Uh, it doesn't really. Uh, I was. I was thinking. Uh, um, let me see. That's not the one I was thinking of. Let me see if I got the other one in here. I don't think I do. So some of the teachings that we have on the husband and wife are related to in the context of the church, not in the context of the home. And let me give you one of those. In First Corinthians eleven. Uh, in First Corinthians eleven, actually, what Paul is teaching on is a tradition in the church of head coverings. 
And that's something that we don't see uh, done literally in many churches today, although there's still some in our circles who uh, the women still wear head coverings. There's a few women at our church that still wear head coverings. Um, and the principle comes back to 1 Corinthians 11. And um, Paul says this. He says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I deliver them unto you. That, that word meaning traditions. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. And so we see this principle here that, that, the man, that, that Christ is over the man and that the man is over the woman as far as what we call headship. Headship is not a statement of ability. Headship is not a statement of, um, of superiority. Headship is not a statement that says women are incapable of leading or incapable of decision-making or are incapable of, of anything per se, but headship is about design. That God has designed men and women differently, and he's designed each of them to fulfill a particular role where, number one, they are best at that role, and number two, where God can bless them because they are in the role that he has ordained and sanctioned them to be in. And so within, whether it's in the family or in the church, or really in society, the, head, the headship principle does not know any boundaries. The idea is that the, the, the man is the head of the woman, and as, as uh, this principle plays out, the other passage I was going to take you to is 1 Timothy 2, where it says, um, particularly in the church, that women should not be teachers in the church. We kind of skipped that in our church section for time's sake but that women should not be teachers in the church. And it appeals to the, this very idea that God has made men and women different. And as we, I think we mentioned it either last week or the week before, uh, as Paul cites the, the reality that in the garden, Eve was the one who was deceived and Adam was not deceived. He rebelled, but Eve was deceived. And he appeals to that characteristic of women to be more emotive as, the, as one of the reasons why... Um, Particularly, men should be the ones ordained by God, designed by God to lead. So again, it's not about women being second-class citizens. If we follow the Word of God, what it, the Word of God actually elevates women beyond just man leading and seeing women as property to man leading and seeing women as what the Bible calls the weaker vessel. And the weaker vessel um, is not the idea that they are intrinsically weaker, although physically, of course, they are. But, or, but the idea of the weaker vessel is, is, if you think of it this way, the fine china. The, the, the ones that are, are, are more delicate, but are also more valuable. Uh, and they serve the most important function in society, which is the perpetuation of the family. And as such, they are to be elevated uh, in that role and encouraged in that role. And statistically, as well as by nature and design, um, women are most happy and content in that role. Uh, and again, we, we always have outliers, right, in our, in our statistical models. But women are, by and large, happiest and most content in that role because that's the role that God has designed them to fill. So the man is intended to be the head of the woman. He is intended to be the head of his household. What we'll find with the family as we study it tonight is that, by and large, like we even talked about last week, um, when, when we were talking, well, and every week with the principles, all of this is getting turned on its head, right? And, and this, is, this, is by, this is on purpose. This is by design. 
uh, particularly as we think of the, 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 what we call the darkness of this world, uh, a satanic design must break down the distinctives of the family because there's protection there, there within the model that God has ordained. And as people reject God, well, here's the problem. Okay, so people are rejecting God, right? They're rejecting God in every aspect of society. They're rejecting that God even exists. Well, the problem is we still have a seven-day work week, and that's ordained by God. The problem is we still have, ha, have our, our calendar that revolves around the birth of Christ. The problem is we still have these gender roles that have been established by God. We still have this thing called the family, whereby the family is an autonomous unit. And the government does not have authority over the, the children, but the family has authority. And within that, there's protection. Within that, there's God's blessing. And so what do we see the darkness of this world doing? Break down every distinctive, remove every opportunity or remove every every ounce of God's hand, God's fingerprints on society and culture. And the more they can tear away God's fingerprints from society and culture, the the more the as as the Bible says, the love of many will wax cold. Um, there will be a, a a further searing of man's conscience from the knowledge of God. And as it gets farther from the knowledge of God, then there can be a, a great apostasy. And that's what the Bible says is coming at the end of this age will be a tremendous turning away from God, a turning away from design, a turning away from all things that are called God. We studied this the first week in Romans chapter 1, uh, that when man knows God but does not glorify him as God, he, they, they begin to take that which God has designed for a natural use, man for woman, woman for man, and use it uh, one toward another. In other words, men with men, women with women. The idea of homosexuality is a, biblically speaking, is a sign of a culture that is so vehement about casting God out of their culture that they actually react violently toward the very um, biological functions that God has designed in them because by even functioning within the, the, the biological design of God, there's some acknowledgement of design. And they're casting off even that degree of acknowledgement of God's design. This is what the Bible says at least as far as why this is what it is. And one of the things that we see in culture is if you want to tear down the family, if you want to create people that uh, are, are susceptible to manipulation and to, to misdirection, you tear down the male. You tear down men. You tear down the idea of the strong man. You tear down the idea of the courageous man. You tear down the idea of the valiant man. And so for the past 20, 30 years, Sitcoms, cartoons, the man, the father is what? He's the bumbling idiot. Whether you want to talk about comics uh, in the papers, whether you want to talk about cartoons, whether you want to talk about sitcoms, the, the mom is the one that has it all together. The dad is the bumbling idiot. And, and, and he comes home and he grabs his beer and he sits on the couch and he doesn't know what's going on. And oh, that's so funny. And then mom is the one that's keeping everything together and she's cleaning up after all of his mistakes. Then the kids do something and dad says, no, you shouldn't do that. And then at the end, it turns out the kids are right and dad is wrong. And dad has egg all over his face. And this has been happening now for 30 years in sitcoms. What are they doing? They are conditioning a mindset within society that says that the father figure is, is, is useless, right? And they're even conditioning the father to feel like it's his birthright to be able to just do nothing in the home. To be able to just come home and grab a beer and sit in front of the TV all night and let mom deal with everything. 
and they're conditioning this even with for, for men within culture. And so um, we we have a, a culture, and even in the church, we have a culture where men do not they do not feel compelled. They're afraid to sometimes even step up and lead their home, to just stand up and say, "No, this is what this is what our home is going to be, and this is what our home is going to do." But here's the problem with that, particularly for Christian husbands. God's still going to hold you accountable. It does not matter whether you claim the role or not. You are still going to be held accountable by God. If you are a husband, you are accountable for the spiritual well-being and the physical well-being of your wife. And there's nothing you can do to change that. There's nothing you can do to change that. That is God's design. That is what God has ordained. If you're the father, then you are the one that's responsible for the spiritual well-being of your family. Not, Not your pastor, not your wife. You will answer to God for that, whether you accept that role, identify that role or not. And so this is why it's so important for us to understand this and to then make a determination that you're going to be that for your home, that you're going you're, you're gonna to take the lead and be the leader in your home. Because one way or not, uh, one way or the other, whether you, whether you accept it or not, you are accountable to God for it. Um, thoughts, questions on man as the... Uh, as the head of his home and the head of his wife. Well, I think it's also interesting because, like, um, every Disney Channel show, every, like, Christian network show that all the kids are watching, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the father figure is, you know, on the couch, super lazy. Like, I don't even know a show that they don't do that with. It's pretty funny. And it's not, it's not um, an accident. Now, I'm not saying that these people are by design, that everyone is by design seeking to tear down the family, but the enemy, the spiritual battle that's waging, they are, that, that it is by design. It's absolutely by design. If you can weaken the men, the men, the family structure, the men of the nation, and particularly the men of the church, to where the church does not have valiant, strong leader men, then you can basically do whatever you want with that culture. You can you, you you can you can run roughshod over it, and it's true. And Disney Disney movies, uh, in particular, for the past I mean for for a long time, have not only fostered that, but they fostered the idea of rebellion. And then what's amazing is that whether it's you know children or whatever it might be, the rebellion always works out. The rebellion always works out, and there's not consequences, with a few exceptions. Generally speaking, the rebel, they do their thing, then there's a crisis, but it always works out in the end, and the rebellion turns up working out. Uh, And again, it's fostering this idea of rebellion, which is one of the things that God hates, perhaps more than anything else in the Bible. If you want to pinpoint something that God truly hates, it's rebellion in any of its forms against authority. Uh, Good, great, great point. What else? Anything else? So the man, he's to be the head of his home. Um, he is to love his wife. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 26, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So we see the design, the example here, is that husbands are called to love their wives in the way that Christ loves the church. And th- this is something else that's really important to understand about marriage is that a biblical marriage is intended not just to function in the manner of Christ and his church, but it's also intended to reflect by nature Christ and his church, which means our children are learning about Christ, the nature of the relationship between Christ and the church, by the way 
I interact with my wife. My children are learning about the nature of Christ and His church. My children are learning about what it means for a church to submit to Christ when they see how my wife reacts to me. My children are learning about the nature of what it means that Christ loves and cares for and provides for His church in the nature of how I treat my wife. Now, if we think about how Jesus Christ treats the church, He's the redeemer of the church. He's the protector of the church. He's the provider of the church. He is the teacher of the church. He's the intercessor of the church. And the Bible says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves His church. And then further on that passage, it says that we are to love our wives as our own bodies. Now there might be a, there's two potential meanings there, maybe a double meaning. One of the meanings uh, could be that because we are one flesh, that I love her as, within the context of the fact that she is my body. She's a part of me. We're one flesh. Secondly though, it might very well mean no man hates his own body. And Paul, Paul, um, uh, does he say that in this passage? Let me see. Yep. Verse 29. No man has hated his own body, right? You're not going to, unless you've got particular issues, you don't go out to hurt yourself, right? You don't try to hurt yourself. You don't uh, uh, go out of the way to inflict pain or wounds. The Bible says, husband, love your wife in that same way. We should never, never intentionally harm, hurt, demean, degrade our wives. Uh, it's an example that we set of Christ in the church, but it's also the command that this is what it means to truly love our wife. To truly love our wife means that we nourish her, we cherish her, we treat her in this manner. Regardless of how she treats us, by the way, um, the Bible does not say love your wives to the degree that she submits to you. The Bible does not say love your wife to the extent that she gives it back to you. Marriage is not a 50-50 proposition, as many would say. Marriage is a 100-100 proposition. That's what the vows say. I will do these things till death do we part. doesn't say unless you don't hold up your end, right? It is I will give you 100% whether you're giving me 100 or 0 or anything in between. And they say, I will give you 100% whether you're giving me... And, and if we both take our vows seriously and we both take the Word of God seriously, then it's going to work out wonderfully. Because she's going to perform her role to the best of her ability without concern for herself. And I'm going to pursue my role 100% to the best of my ability without concern for myself. And we're going to get along just fine. Because we're loving one another. We're, we, are, we are performing our vows and we're doing it right. Uh, but we are to love our wives. I also give you um, Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. And then I give you, thirdly, 1 Peter 3, uh, verse 7, which says, it's number 4 there, uh, but um, likewise ye husbands, dwell with them, that's your wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. There's a warning here that, that your spiritual life is hindered when you and your wife are out of fellowship. We talked a little bit about forgiveness last week and the idea that if I don't forgive others, then the Lord will not forgive me. Well, the idea that my wife and I, that I am, I am 
not dwelling with, I'm not loving my wife, dwelling with her according to knowledge. The idea being I understand her, her needs, her propensities, and I am meeting her needs. I am going out of my way to, to serve and love her. Now that doesn't mean that I have to, that doesn't mean I, 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 I cow to her, right? It doesn't mean I, I submit myself to her. The, the idea of, of loving her and nourishing her is not an idea that I am yielding to her my role but it is that when I'm thinking about my decision-making process, I care about her, right? I'm not just a bull in a china shop. This is what we're doing and I don't care if you don't have the energy. I don't care if you don't have the ability. I don't care what you want. This is it. And there are times where a man has to step up and make a decision and his wife's not going to like it. But if you have to make a decision and your wife's going to like it, it, it ought to be with the understanding that my wife doesn't like it, but this is still what's best for her even if she doesn't think that at the time. And so we dwell with them according to knowledge. We give honor to our wives as unto the weaker vessel, as unto that fine china, that, that, that one who is precious and who is valuable to me because we're heirs together of the grace of life. And if I fail at this, or if she fails on her end, our prayers can be hindered. So as, as the, the man... We are to be the head of our home. We're to lead our homes. We are to love our wives. We're to train our children unto spiritual and physical maturity. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. It's number 5 on your sheet. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. Keep the word of God at the forefront of your children's minds. This is how we train up our children in the way that they should go. You want them to, to uh, reap the benefits of the word of God, then you need to have the word of God before them. Uh, it, it, it should be in, in the music they listen to. It should be uh, around the house. Uh, you should have the scriptures. Uh, I, I've seen families before where uh, they put a Bible verse on their television. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. Just to make sure that, they're, that, that every time their children turn on the TV, they've got a biblical principle that guides them in their television watching process. Um, in my family, what we do is uh, we have a Bible time every day. And it's generally about 30 minutes long. And what we do at the beginning of the week is we first talk about what we've learned that week in church. Because our, all of us, we all stay together in our church. So the parents and the children are all learning the same thing. And that gives the parents the capacity to reinforce what's learned in church at home. And so Monday we talk about what we talked about in Sunday school. Tuesday is morning service. Wednesday is the evening service. Thursday is the Tuesday night service. And then Friday and Saturday are wild cards. Um, they can be whatever, whatever we need to talk about. Uh, a lot of times with my little kids, we're, we're ending up at the gospel. And we're talking about the gospel because I've still got two of, uh, uh, two of my four children that are born, one more on the way here soon, uh, who are unbelievers. And so the gospel needs to be forefront until they come to the point where they accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. After we have our short time of talking, it's generally 10, 10 minutes or so, then we, we memorize the Bible together. And my, my, my little, uh, my, I've got a three-year-old boy and I've got uh, girls that are six years old. And we've got a repertoire of about 40 verses that I can just say the reference and they can 
rattle off the verses one after another, and we make them applicable verses. Verses that talk about the gospel, verses that talk about being kind one to another, verses that talk about no corrupt communication coming out of my mouth, verses that talk about not comparing ourselves one, uh, among one another. My girls, uh, they're vain. And so they, 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 uh, they get into, they're, they're twins, right? I've got twin daughters. And they, they compete over who's the most beautiful. I mean, they're identical twins, right? So they're competing over who's the most beautiful. Beautiful. So they're throwing different dresses on. And then they go up to Benjamin, and he's, he is he's the, the judge. The judge. The <laughs> and, and so they, Benjamin, which one's more beautiful? And he'll say this one. And is so the other one. what, three? He's three. Four? Yeah. So the other one goes and puts another dress over her dress. So they, you know, by the end, they look like A cupcakes, pack. right? Because they've got six, seven dresses on to impress their brother to see who's the most beautiful. And so we had a talk about modesty and vanity. And the fact that it's okay to want to look beautiful, but it's not okay to judge myself on my physical beauty. This is, this is vanity. This is pride. This is something that's wrong. And so we, we memorize verses on that. And we do that for about 10 to 15 minutes. And then we sing a hymn or two together. And then we pray. And we do this every day as a means by which to keep the Word of God in front of my children because that's my, that's my responsibility. And one of the things, and one of the reasons why we're a non-age segregated church uh, at, at Legacy is because one of the propensities that has had that, that the unfortunate things, there's a lot of benefits in, in some ways to age segregation for organization and whatnot. But one of the major detriments that we see in society to age segregation is, is the idea that, that parents get, their, get, get in their minds the same thing with, with uh, churches that kind of get with school, which is I send my kids off, someone else teaches them, they come back, I help them do their homework. Uh, except church oftentimes doesn't give homework, and so I don't even have to do that with church. And then they end up, after, after their 13 years, they're educated. And so they kind of get into that same mindset at church. I send my kids to Sunday school. I send my kids to, to children's church. And then they come back, and they, they come back spiritual. And I ask them, as is typical, right, hey, kids, what did you learn today? Nothing. Okay. And then we do the same routine next week, right? And all of a sudden, parents are losing the appreciation for the fact that the spiritual growth of their children is their responsibility. It's your responsibility, uh, fathers, to guide your children. It's not the church's responsibility. The church's responsibility is to be the pillar in the ground of truth, to prepare the saints for the work of the ministry. It's my job to teach you how to teach your children. It's my job to teach you the, the doctrines you need to be able to then relay them to your children. It's not my job to make your children godly adults. It's your job to do that. And that's primarily the father's job. And we'll talk about the mother in a minute, but the mother, as the one who submits to her husband, the headship role, she aligns with her husband's vision. And then her job and her responsibility and her accountability before God is not whether or not her children turn out. Her accountability before God is whether or not she has conformed herself to the expectations and the vision of her husband and whether or not she's worked that out properly. And to whatever degree the husband delegates that job off to the wife, she does that to the best of her ability. That, it's not her job to decide the vision and direction. It's her job to, to work out his vision and his direction, her husband's vision, her husband's direction for the family. And so the idea that, that the, the father has to be present for all of this is not necessarily true because the, 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 the wife ought to do that. And is that, that's a big portion of the wife's not just her duty, but also her redemption from 1 Timothy 2. Um, that, that the woman is redeemed through the role of childbearing and raising children as far as her role in the church and her role in the family. This is her glory. 
And this is intended to be her glory, that she is raising godly children in the vein of her husband's vision and desire, presuming that her husband is a believer. Um, did we read Colossians? Yeah, I think we uh, train up his children. Colossians, Ephesians 6.4. Ephesians 6, 4 says, um, Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Uh, that's, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Then Colossians 3, 21, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And that goes into how to raise children. There's a lot of things that we could talk about that we're not going to get to tonight as it, as it relates to raising children. But one of the things that we parents uh, can do, and it causes our children to... We, it, to distance themselves from us a little bit emotionally is that we frustrate them. And we frustrate them, we provoke them, as it says here, uh, particularly when we're not clear in our expectations. So we discipline them, but we've not been clear in our expectations. So they're, 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 they're trying to hit a moving target. They don't know what is going to make mom and dad happy or sad. Uh, they could do one thing one day and they could do it the next day and it's fine. Then on the third day, dad's in a bad mood and he snaps for the thing that the other two days was okay or at least was not disciplined. And so there's an inconsistency there, and that causes frustration in the child because now they don't know how to please mom and dad, and then they just have to stay away from mom and dad when mom and dad are in certain moods, and then when mom and dad aren't in certain moods, they can get away with murder, and it really doesn't matter. And this creates in the home not just a lack of discipline, and it makes it harder on parents, by the way, but it also creates in the home an environment where the, the child is not able to feel the freedom and then there, there, there comes a division between the, the parent and the child. One of the things that I lament, if I can put it this way, I'm getting a little off track here as it relates to men in general, or specifically, but uh, parents and children, and this is a part of, again, why the age-segregated culture, so everything in our culture is age-segregated. And one of the problems then is that there's no appreciation for elders among the younger. They don't seek to their elders for, for counsel. They seek to their peers for counsel. They don't seek to their elders for wisdom. They roll their eyes and say, my elders don't know what they're talking about. They seek to their peers for wisdom. And this generation gap that has been created is devastating to society. It's, it, it, it creates perpetual adolescence. It means that generations are having to relearn the lessons that shouldn't have to be learned again because they're not listening to the people that have all, like, like what, what was it? ear protection, right? <laughs> like not listening, say, oh yeah, you know, dad says I need to protect my ears. And then they get older and they say, yep, it's true. And then they tell their sons and their sons say, forget about you. And it's this perpetual cycle, right? Of not listening. And uh, there's a gap that's created when we frustrate our children. And then as parents, we... If I can, the only way I can describe it is we become afraid of our children. We become afraid to, 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 to look our child in the eye and say, Hey son, you're 14, 15, 16 year old. How's your thought life? How, how, how's it going with that? Can I just sit down and ask you? And, see our ch and then our children, they don't want to come up and tell me. Because they're afraid that I'm going to explode if they, if they tell me that they're struggling with a sin. Then they think dad's going to get angry. And all of a sudden, instead of a child being able to come up and say, Mom and Dad, I'm just really struggling with this sin. And I, I, I want to get it over with. They say, I can't tell Mom and Dad because they're going to take, they're, they're, they're just going to explode on me. And now our, the children feel as though they can't come to their parents with the very things that their parents ought to be able to help them through in those years uh, uh, where they can really actually still be helped. <laughs> 
before things get confirmed and they get out in the world and then and then the roller coaster ride starts right of life and uh, and provision and, and, and family and all of these things and so we become afraid of our children and our children are actually afraid of us in the sense of these spiritual issues in the sense of these things where we are to be the guides of our children we are to be a stabilizing force and if I have clear expectations in my home these are the things that are wrong these are the things that are right but then I also say okay outside of these clear expectations you have freedom and then I, I make it very clear to my, parents, my, my children and my children understand that I love them and I want them to be spiritually successful and I would and it's, it's much more important to me that they come to me with these things than it is that they hide them from me because they don't want to get in trouble and this sort of a fostering this sort of a relationship in the home it doesn't mean that I'm my child's friend in the sense that I, they don't see me as an authority but it does mean that my child trusts me and trusts me enough to know that if they have some problem, they, they can come to mom and dad and that's what they should do. And they can trust mom and dad to help them instead of just berate them. I had a, a situation growing up where um, I, I was struggling with, with, with sin and I went to my mom and dad and I said, this is a real struggle for me and, and I confessed it. And the only thing that happened is I got punished like crazy. I lost all these privileges and that was it. Like that was, that was literally all that happened. And I, I sat there and I thought, um, okay, I'm never going to do that again. That was my only response is I'm never going to do that again because I didn't get any help and I just lost a bunch of privileges. Why would I do that again? But that's kind of the natural reaction of the parent, right? You've done wrong. <laughs> But, but this, is, this is, if I can say it, this is a part of provoking our children into anger. This is a part of frustrating our children. We're frustrating their desires to do what's right by levying the hammer when we're supposed to have grace and by having grace when we're supposed to levy the hammer. Because if I'm in a good mood and they're just doing something that, you know, whatever, then I'm not going to call them out on it even though I told them not to do it. But then they come up to me and their conscience is finally at a place of tenderness and they need help and I drop the hammer on them. We need to be careful as fathers. This is our job to train up our children the way they should go. Any thoughts? Kind of rolling here. I stood up, that was the problem. Now I'm really going here. That's good. <laughs> All right. We are to uh, provide for our household. Um, uh, there's Second Thess Thessalonians 3. And 1 Timothy 5 are the two I give you here. Um, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-15. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother, that would be someone who claims to be a believer, walking disorderly, not after the tradition which he received of us. For ye yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. In other words, we, weren't, we didn't just bum off of you. We earned our keep. Not because we have not power. They actually had the power as ministers of God to receive, but to make ourselves an, an, an sample or an example to you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work, and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing, and if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, this is within the context of believers, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. 
Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. It is a, a man's responsibility to work, to provide for himself, to provide for his family. Uh, then uh, 1 Timothy, this is number 6, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 through 16, talks about um, the widow and honoring the widow that is uh, a widow indeed. In other words, she does not have family to care for her. And um, the Bible says that... Um, um, Let's see. Uh, that if she has if she has uh, children or nephews or brothers or sisters, that they should provide for her and not the church. And verse six says, "But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth, and these things give in charge that they may be blameless. But if any man provide not for his own house and especially for those of his own house." Or excuse me, of his, for his own and especially those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. The idea there being that if a man refuses to provide for his own household, he is worse than an infidel. One that is, uh, he, he is, he is an un, he's unfaithful to the word of God. It is expected. Now, again, this does not mean that there are not situations where the wife provides and the husband does not. You know, we live in a, a fallen world. We live in a, a world where we each have different abilities and skills. Women are very capable of working and in our society, there's that opportunity. Is it the best? Well, certainly not, right? The way God has designed men and women, the structure of the home, it's best to have the man providing for his home. It's best to have the woman in that nurturing role with her children. This is without a doubt what is best. But there are times where this needs to, you know, flip-flop. There are people, you know, the man is, is hurt or, or has a disability and he needs to stay at home and his wife needs to be the one working, those sorts of things. Uh, we're, we're, we're giving a principle here. And the principle is this, that God expects me to provide for my household. And this is my responsibility before God to do so. This is not saying that God is not the one actually providing He's the one providing my work. He's the one providing the means. He's the one that's providing my, for my health. But it is my responsibility to meet the needs of my household as the husband, father, man of the house. And uh, this, is, this is God's design. Finally, under men, uh, he leads his family into godliness. I already gave you Deuteronomy 6. The idea of having scripture around the house, of, of guiding, of using the circumstances uh, that, that are around us to teach spiritual lessons. When my wife and I are around a fire and our children are there as well, we go one of two directions with it. Either destruction and judgment, as evidenced by fire in the Bible, or that tremendous phrase that we see several times in the Bible, for our God is a consuming fire. Right? And we'll, we'll use fire as an opportunity on, on a given night to remind our children about the character of God. What do you think it means that our God is a consuming fire? And we can talk about this and we can highlight the character of God. Uh, when it rains, we can talk about the Isaiah 55. As the snow falls from heaven and the rain falls and then it, it goes back to where it came, so is God's word. It will not return unto me void. The idea being, by the way, they understood that the rain falls and then it goes back to the clouds. They understood that process back in that day. Um, the idea being, however, that God's word, when it falls, it comes back and, it, and it, it, it's never void. It always fulfills the purpose that it's intended as it goes forth. We use these opportunities to guide our children. 
the word of God, when, when the Bible says in the Jewish culture that, that the word of God was to be frontlets in their, before their eyes, well, the Jews actually have a little box on their forehead where they put a piece of scripture now. They've, they've interpreted that about as literally as you possibly can. But the point is that when I, everything I look at ought to be filtered through God. God is all around. It doesn't mean God is in everything, but it means God's fingerprints are everywhere, and especially in nature. You can't go anywhere in nature without seeing God's design, God's power, um, um, God's uh, uh, beauty, right? Um, and, and then, you know, Greg and I were talking a little bit last time we were up in Canada, talking about the beauty and, and then thinking a little bit about, well, this is the fallen world, right? Imagine what, as Second Peter calls it, the old world must have looked like. Uh, the world before the flood. Imagine what that must have been look like. Look like if this is the sin cursed world, right? Wow, that must have been something. And uh, all of that can be drawn out in just a few minutes of time to remind your children that God is there. To remind your children that 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 God is functioning. When my girls get into a fight, I'll yell down the stairs, Ephesians four thirty two. What does it say? And I'll make them quote. And be ye kind one to another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. What, what am I doing? I'm telling them that what you're doing here is you're not just being unkind to one another, but there's a standard that God is holding you to, and you're breaching that standard. Let's remember that. Let's remember why we do what we do. We don't do what we do just because if I'm kind to others, they'll be kind back to me. I do what I do because I love God, and because I want to please God, and this is what God has asked. And so I do it. And it does end up being better for me as well. And so this is the this is our responsibility, men. And um, we will be held accountable for it before the throne. Women. Um, women are to submit to their husbands. Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. And you know what? I think one of the reasons why wives are struggling with this today is because church does not exemplify it. Churches don't exemplify submission to Christ. They read the Word of God and they say, how can we get around this one? How can we explain away this one? How can we avoid this one? How can I do what I want to do and still say I'm complying with this one? The church is not very submissive to Christ today. And women are not very submissive to their husbands today. Submission is not explicitly... Uh, submission is certainly not being a slave to one's husband. Submission is not just doing what I'm told. That's not the concept of submission. Submission is that I understand the vision and the direction of my husband and I am aligning myself with it. Uh, the idea that... that uh, um, um, we have that, that, that a wife says, this is mine. You can't, you can't touch this. This is my domain. And they withhold something from their husband. There's an idea there that, that if we parallel it to the church, the idea that the church looks at Christ and says, it says I'm going to obey you in these areas, but this area is mine and you can't have it. Well, when we, when, when we parallel it in that way, all of a sudden the principle, there's a problem here, isn't there? Well, the wife says, so I just have to yield everything to my husband. Yes, with the understanding that your husband loves you. 
which means as I say to Christ, Christ, it's all yours. My money is yours. My time is yours. My abilities are yours. My desires are yours. And I yield them up to him. Do you know what Christ does with that? He pours back upon me his blessings. He says, now that you've given it to me, let me show you what I have for you. And he pours out his blessings and he gives me what, what is best for me. And I'm happy. And if women could understand this, that contentment, that true contentment is not found in, uh, in, in um, kicking back at their husbands, but rather in aligning with their husbands, trusting their husband to love them and to honor them as, as is their right. And again, it's a 100-100 proposition, so they do that regardless of whether they're, they're getting that love back. It's not an easy thing. But women would be so much more content. There's, and any of you with, that, are, that have not been in leadership and then been in leadership or been in leadership and then not been, can understand this idea. There's something so um, restful uh, about the idea that there's someone above me making the decisions and I just have to implement it. So that they tell me, hey, go do this. And you say, that's not a good idea. And they say, go do it. Well, okay, the buck stops with you, right? I'm not going to get in trouble. My job is to do what you're telling me. If it goes horribly wrong because it's a bad decision, that's on the head of the boss. That's not on the head of the person that the boss is telling to do it. As long as the person that the boss is telling to do it does his job properly. It's not on his head whether or not it works out. That's the boss because the boss is the one that made that decision. If women could understand that when they stand before God, they are not accountable for how things turn out. They're accountable for whether or not they did what, 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 they aligned themselves with what was asked of them. In my mind, that takes a huge weight off of them. They don't have to set the direction for the family. They simply have to honor their husband's direction. And when they stand before God, God will not look at them and say, wow, your family went in all the wrong direction. And there will not be judgment for her on that. That's not her responsibility. But what she will be judged for is whether or not she faithfully submitted to her husband. And so there are women today that take upon themselves this right of directing their family. And in doing so, maybe their family finds more material success. But they've done it at expense of the spiritual riches in heaven for them because they've done it outside of their husband's authority. And so they're actually taking upon themselves the husband's role and they're, they're neglecting their own. But it is the responsibility of the wife to submit herself to her husband as unto the Lord, not for his sake, but for God's sake. This is not an easy thing. The idea that my husband is making decisions that, that are hard on me, they're hard on my family, but I'm not doing this for him. It's the same thing that the Bible says about, your, uh, about a boss. I'm not doing this for him. I'm doing it for God. Why is it that I do a good job when I go and I do something? Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. When I serve my boss well, maybe he's a bad boss, and I serve him well and he doesn't deserve it, I'm not doing it for him. I'm doing it for God. Because I'm going to do what is my responsibility to the best of my ability, not because of my boss. Whether my boss is good or bad, it's nice to have a good boss. But if he's a bad boss, that doesn't change the degree to which I work. That doesn't change the quality of my effort. Why? Because I'm not doing it for him, I'm doing it for the glory of God. And that's where reward is. 
as a wife, as a husband. I don't love my wife for my wife's sake, although I love my wife. I'm doing it because it, for, for the Lord's sake. And that means on the day where my wife is odious, <laughs> on the day where my wife is not lovable, I love her anyway because it's not about her. It's about God. It's about honoring God. It's about, it's about serving God. And my wife serves me even when I'm not, not, not doing a good job. And she submits herself to me even when I'm not doing a good job. Not for me, not because of me, not because of anything having to do with me, but because of God. Because this is what God has asked of her. And that's where reward is found. And by the way, that's where God has designed women to be happiest as well. That's where, that's where contentment is found for them. And society has duped women into thinking that contentment is in autonomy. But uh, contentment with, with, with the woman is not in autonomy. Contentment is in submission. It truly is. It's just the way God's designed women. And um, when we teach our young, uh, again, as fathers, if you want to teach your young child, your, your, your daughter something, teach them the joys and the beauty of submission. It will, it will be a, a lesson that will serve them well for the rest of their lives that will align them with the design of God for them, and that's where blessing is found. A couple of other passages here on that. Um, Colossians 3.18, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Notice in both cases it says to your own husbands, right? It doesn't say to every husband. <laughs> women, women now in the church, women need to be under under. The, their, their authorities in the church and such as well. But the idea is not that every man has the right to tell every woman what to do. As it, it, When that happens, women have become second-class citizens. That any man can look at any woman and say, you, do this, you. you know, and, and then she has to obey on penalty of some sort of remuneration. No, she's accountable to her husband and her husband alone. And if some guy on the street says, woman, do this, there's no obligation there. Absolutely not. And by the way, as a husband, you should have some words to say about that because she's yours and you have every right to be jealous over her and she's not anyone else's and no one else has the right to her in, that, in, in, in any way uh, like that. So submit yourself to your own husbands, right? Um, this is not a, you, women come into the church and every man is on this level and every woman is on this level and it's not like that. Uh, but the woman comes in submission to church authority. She comes in submission to, the, to her husband. Um, then finally, Titus 2, verse 5. Um, the, t- Titus 2 speaks of the interaction between the elder and the younger in the church. I'm going to read from beginning in verse 1. Uh, this is number 3 on your sheet. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. This is good teaching. That the aged men, the older men, be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. This is what old, the elders in the church ought to exhibit. The aged... Women likewise, that they be in behaviors becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women, and this is the young women's responsibility, to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. That as women come outside of this role, of submission outside of this role of um, the, the purveyor of the next generation of society, it, it brings about blasphemy to the Word of God. That is, people read the Word of God and then they see 
women who claim to be followers of the Word of God coming so far outside of that which is God's design, there's no other result but that the Word of God is blasphemed. That people roll their eyes and say, okay, I guess the Bible doesn't really mean much even to those that say they follow it. She is to submit to her husband. Thoughts or questions on that? So we've had the question come up before, what do you do if the wife is not there? Um, and there's a process. You can't just go home and say, okay, woman, things are about to change. And then everything changes overnight. Uh, you do that and uh, particularly if the Lord has not been working dramatically to prepare her heart for such a thing, which God can do, um, you're going to have more problems than solutions. Work for me. <laughs> well, well roll, roll the dice, maybe it'll work. Once. But what do we do? Well, the process that I've tried to bring you up, uh, along in this class and in the last class is this. We build up, we start with presuppositions. Can we trust that the Bible is true? Can we trust that if God says it, it's true? Can we trust that, that, that God intended to communicate within His Word? Can we trust that God's design is best? If God created the, everything, then can I trust that by virtue of God creating it, if God's given us a user manual for how it functions, that that user manual is valid? You bring her along. Can we decide then not only that God's Word is true, but that God's Word is worth obeying? Can we decide that, that, that we are going to do our best to the best of our ability to align ourselves with the user manual? And if your wife believes that God's word is true, believes that God has communicated, and believes that God's word is worth obeying, then the next step is, all right, now we need to align our family with God's word, and this is what the Bible says. And there are plenty of, uh, of you know, books and audio conferences and such that can help you along in this process if you need to teach a wife who has no concept of what it means. When, when, if, if, uh, if, 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 if a wife is, is hearing in submission slavery, then there's going to have to be a fundamental redesign of what is in her mind when, when, when the word submission is used. And for a lot of um, people, the word that they use instead of submission is respect. So women need to be loved, men need to be respected. And this is kind of that foundational. that The respect word is uh, honoring your husband, submitting to your husband. It's the same idea. It's just said in a way that doesn't have quite the same negative connotation today as the word submit. Uh, but your goal will be to get her to the point where she's not afraid of that word because she understands that submission is not my husband is, is slave master, but rather I'm partnering with my husband according to the design of God for me, which is that I align myself with my husband's vision, my husband's desires, doesn't mean he, it doesn't mean you don't listen to your wife. It doesn't mean you don't consult with her. It doesn't mean you, you two are one flesh, right? You're partners in this. But it does mean that the buck stops with you. It does mean that she does not punish you if she does not like your decision. It, it, it does mean that, that she, she's not going to withhold from you. The Bible explicitly says that husbands and wives are not to withhold physical intimacy from one another. So the idea that a wife would punish her husband by withholding physical intimacy is directly disobedient to the Word of God. The idea that she will emotionally punish you by coldness. There's no submission if she does what you're... What, when, 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 I, when I teach my children obedience, I ask them, what is obedience? And they know the definition. Obedience is doing what you are told 
when you are told to do it with a right heart attitude. If I say, Alethea, please go empty the trash. And she says, fine. And she stomps off and empties the trash. She did not obey me. She didn't obey me. Because she has not aligned herself with me. She has complied with my expectation, but she has not obeyed. She has not submitted herself to me. She has, she's not uh, uh, um, coming alongside and, and actually placing herself under my authority. She is begrudgingly doing something. And, if our, uh, and as we teach our wives this concept, and they'll, it, as you lead them along, and this, this is our job, we're leaders. You've you got to develop people sometimes, right? Whether it's, whether it's in the business world, whether it's regardless of the world, you have to invest time in people and develop them. Not everybody starts ready-made. And it's the same with our wives and our children. We have a mindset, we have a vision, a direction of where we want them to be, and it might be a process, one step at a time. What's the first step of that process? Get them to regard the Word of God. What's the next step of the process? Get them to understand the value of obedience to the Word of God. Get them to see God's Word is preeminent. Get, get them to see that, that serving God is, is worth this, is, is, is worth their, their sacrifice. And then bring them along to the next step, which is how can we serve the God? How can we serve God in our families? And if you're not married yet, wait for this kind of a girl. They're out there, and wait for it. Don't, don't. You, you will save yourself all sorts of trouble if you get someone that has learned this already. An enormous amount of trouble. <laughs> now that one sounded like personal experience. <laughs> When, um, when, when, when we trust the Lord to bring into our lives the person that, that is right in character, the idea that you know, we be the right one and we, we, we allow the Lord then to, to draw the right one to us, if we hold to this standard of what it is that, 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 that we're looking for according to God's Word, my wife and I call it a silhouette. Um, the idea of a silhouette is that you have a, an idea in your mind of what you're looking for. And with a man, it's a little, uh, the, the silhouette idea doesn't work quite as well because men are so visual, visually oriented, right? But the silhouette, the idea of the silhouette is it doesn't matter. I just see a shadow. It doesn't matter what that shadow looks like. I'm not looking at physical appearance, but what I'm looking for is character traits. What, what, what are the character traits I'm looking for in the person? And then you, 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 you take that silhouette and you place it against the people that you're interested in and by doing so you have this standard that keeps you grounded especially if you're starting to emotionally invest in one way shape or form that keeps you grounded looking for those attributes that are going to make it a lot easier for you later make it a lot easier for you and your wife to have unity in your home which is very important that if children know that that they can just go here and and go to mom for this and go to dad for that and there's they're not on the same page can it work it can work but generally speaking, it creates a, 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 um, a, a divided authority base in the home, and it creates divided children. So um, my, my, my home was this way, uh, where my mom and my dad had different standards. And my dad was, uh, it's, 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 it's more difficult when the dad is the less conservative, because the dad has the authority in the home, and the mom has to kind of just take it. But in my home, actually, my dad was the more conservative, but my dad gave my mom the flexibility to branch outside of that. And then, of course, since he gave her the flexibility, he couldn't very well withhold that from his children. 
And so now we have the flexibility. And while m me and my two sisters all love the Lord, we're all believers, we're all serving the Lord in one capacity or another, there's a pretty big difference between the, <laughs> the capacities. And that's because there was some disunity in the home. And it created disunity among the children as far as there couldn't be a unified front and direction. And again, that can also frustrate children. And we need to be careful for those things. So wives are supposed to submit. This is, this is the design of God. This is the way our family should look. And remember, it's not just about your wife submitting to you. It, it, and, and it's not even just about the Lord. This is about what you're teaching your children about what the, how the church is supposed to function. The way your children see your wife treat you will be a large part of how they relate the relationship between the church and Christ. So again, why is it that the church is more than willing to just cast aside vast por portions of Scripture? Well, probably in part because the, the greatest earthly example of the relationship between Christ and His church, which is the marriage relationship, these children have grown up watching their moms completely disregard dad. And as they've watched that, there's no basis for them to understand the concepts of submission as it relates to the church. And then our young men are growing up not expecting it either in the church or in the home. And so they have no means by which to understand and relate to it as leaders in the church, as leaders in the home. And this, the, the, the very simple next step to that is that the women become the leaders and assume that role because the men don't. Um, she is to increase her home is the second point there. Proverbs 31 woman. Um, the the, the uh, Proverbs 31 woman as a woman who um, takes uh, whose primary charge is to take care of her home. We even saw it in Titus 2 that she's a keeper at home. That doesn't mean by any means that she was idle or that she was not working to increase her home. What we see as far as Proverbs 31 is concerned, the, the idea of the virtuous woman. The Bible says, who can find a, a woman of virtue, a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies. She is a valuable asset. I, I don't mean to, uh, uh, to, to make her a commodity, but a, a, a virtuous woman is the most valuable thing to a man. Absolutely the most valuable thing to a man. The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her. She's absolutely trustworthy. That he shall have no need of spoil. And because of that, and because of his great trust, he doesn't feel, and his love for her, and his regard for her, and his respect for her, he has no need to go outside of her. <laughs> because she is... She is um, giving him everything that he needs. Oftentimes, uh, men, as they, as, one of the great temptations to infidelity is that they can find someone who's not going to nag and berate, and they can find a woman who, who will um, respect him and just be to him what his wife is not being. And if she's going to have all of these, she's going to lay down all of these, these expectations and rules and whatnot, and the guy says, well, it's just easier to go another route. But the heart of the virtuous woman, or the, the heart of the husband of the virtuous woman, uh, can, trusts her, loves her, and she is an asset to him, and he greatly values her because of that, and there's nothing in her that would ever drive him away. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not cads and bad men and perverse men. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the, 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 the element where a woman might drive a man into the arms of another woman. 
because of her interactions and actions toward him. Doesn't, it does not excuse the man by any means. It's never right. But it cannot be said that the nature and disposition of a, of a wife toward her husband has never driven a man away from her and toward someone else. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. She's like the merchant ship. She bringeth her food from afar. She riseth also while it is yet um, night and giveth meat to her household, a portion for the maidens. She considereth a field and buyeth it. So she's involved here. She's buying fields. She's bringing food from afar. She's interacting in commerce. But she's doing it all under the authority and auspice of her husband. She's doing it to increase her household not to increase her own bank account. She's not working for herself. She's not working so she can buy her own stuff with her own money. She is working for her household's good. And her husband trusts her implicitly. His resources are her resources. So she goes and she buys a field with it. And she begins tilling that field. And her husband comes back and says, wow, you have increased our household. <laughs> and the idea is generally speaking that the husband would go afar, you know, his, his business would take him on long journeys or he, he might be gone, you know, the shepherd would follow his flocks and, and would have to lead his flocks and they might be gone for weeks at a time and then come back and he comes back and he says, not only has my wife managed the household, but she's increased it. She's actually taken the money that I've left to her and she's made this house better. Um, she considereth field byeth it, that with the fruit of her hand she planteth a vineyard. She girdeth her loins with strength, strengtheneth her arms. She perceiveth that her merchandise is good, her candle goeth not out by night. She has initiative. She works hard for her family. She layeth her hand on the spindle. Her hands hold the distaff. She stretcheth out her hands to the poor. She reacheth forth her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of the snow for her household, for her household are clothed with scarlet. She's prepared them for that. Her husband is known in the gates. He sitteth well among the elders. She maketh fine linen and selleth it and delivereth girdles. So uh, her efforts have made her, have made her husband more prominent. If I can say it this way, the virtuous woman's success is rooted in her husband's success. The more her husband's honor and success grows, the more she finds herself successful. That's where she roots her success. Once again, in the business world, it can be like this too, right? Uh, the, the success of my, my boss is my success as well. That sort of an idea. So I'm going to work for the success of this business. And generally speaking, the business, the boss, they're the ones that get the credit. But their credit and their success redounds to my success as well as one who is under him as our business grows and as opportunities arise for, for uh, moving up in the ladder and all of these sorts of things. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in the time to come. She openeth her mouth with wisdom and in her tongue is the law of kindness. She looketh well to the ways of her household. She eateth not the bread of idleness. Her children arise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praiseth her. Many daughters have done virtuously, but thou excellest them all. Favor is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. The woman that, that is most praiseworthy is not the most beautiful woman or the most favorable woman. It's the godly woman. That's what we ought to desire of our wives, ought to look for in a wife, that's what we ought to be trying to cultivate in our wives. The woman that fears the Lord, this is the praiseworthy woman. The, uh, the second bit there, 
as far as this goes, let's see, is um, Titus 2.5. Um, um, which says that the young women should be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands. That doesn't mean they can't leave the home, but it means that they are working to the increase of their household under the submission and authority of their husband. And that's what we're, we are working, that's what, that's what, um, the vir that, that's, that's what a virtuous woman is. And then finally she raises her children. Um, we see this again in uh, Titus 2, that she, uh, that the young woman is sober, loves her husband, loves their children, and um, that she is obedient to her own husband. So the idea of her loving her children, her raising her children, and um, I would again, uh, this is where I can take you to that other passage. So I gave you 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Timothy 2, the Bible talks about women not being teachers in the church, and the Bible says this, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, uh, being deceived, was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. There's a bit, real question about what that means. Um, what I believe that means, that she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and holiness and uh, faith and charity and holiness with sobriety is that the, the, the redeeming, the, the woman's redemptive value. If the woman says, well, I can't teach in the church, what am I just good for the nursery? Well, no, but yes, in, in the sense of this, your job in the church is to learn and to submit and then your redemption is when you raise your children and your children become the next generation of church leaders. And they become the next generation of facilitators of you know, women who are loving their husbands and men who are leading in the church. And then the mother says, I have contributed to the church in this extremely valuable way. We all know that raising children is a full-time job. And if our children are going to turn out to be solid leaders in the church, it takes a lot of effort. And, and, and the redemption for the woman in this role is that her effort is, is primarily what brings about the next generation of the church. Uh, the, the old adage goes, the hand that rocks the cradle leads the nation, right? Because it's the ones that, lead, that, that, that raise the next generation, that influence the next generation that truly have the power. Um, C.S. Lewis, uh, I believe it was C.S. Lewis, that uh, he, he regarded every profession, he, he effectively said, and I'm paraphrasing, every profession in the world serves exclusively to provide for the mother to stay at home and raise up the next generation of society. And that was his, his idea. His, his vision was that, that the, the whole point of commerce is to provide the means by which to allow women to, to, to raise their children and to invest in their children, to invest in the next generation of the church and the next generation of society. And this is a responsibility of, of the godly woman. Um, let's talk about... 
uh, and then leading her children into godliness. Uh, Proverbs 31 talked about that. Her children will rise up and call her blessed. Um, children, what's the responsibility of the, uh, of the children? Uh, they, they are to obey their parents. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Notice it doesn't say, children, obey your parents if they're good parents. It doesn't say, obey your, the, your parents if they're believers. It says, obey your parents in the Lord. In the same way that the wife submits to her husband, not for the husband's sake, but for the Lord's sake. In the same way, the, the husband loves his wife, not for his wife's sake, but for the Lord's sake. In this same manner, the child is to obey his parents, not for his parents' sake, but for the Lord's sake. And if our children can get a hold of this idea that I'm obeying my parents, not because they can take away my phone, or not because they can make my life miserable, but because God wants me to and I need to please God, um, then not only are our, I mean, it makes our lives easier as parents, uh, all of those things, but they are building a foundation for obedience for the rest of their lives. That's going to make them better husbands, better wives, better church goers, better citizens, better everything. They're to obey their parents, they're to honor their parents. Now, we mentioned already that a man should leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 2 says, Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. And that promise in the Ten Commandments is that as, uh, as you honor your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God hath given you. And the promise there is uh, several fold. Number one, that as they obey the Lord, the Lord would, would supernaturally bless. But number two, the idea that as they honor their parents, that there is... Um, a, a protection that comes from that. Obedience and honoring are two slightly different things. When a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves unto his wife and they too become one flesh, the obligation of a child to obey his parents ceases. But there is never a point where the obligation to honor your parents ceases. The idea that I do not speak ill of them, I do not dishonor them, that I regard them, that I hold them. It doesn't mean that I have to always, it doesn't mean that I have to obey them. Dad comes over and says something and you say, yep, dad, I know. And, and, and but, but whatever it is, is not your direction. You know, one of the things, especially in a Christian household is a lot of times, um, parents are somewhat, when a person decides, so let's say that, that, um, you know, you decide that you're going to readjust your home. <coughs> Wife is going to stay home, raise the kids, submit to her husband, all of this. All of a sudden, the parents, perhaps of the wife in particular, are going to come up and say, what are you doing, right? Uh, have you joined a cult? You know, what's going on here? And the idea that you have to obey them when they say, you need to stop this. Well, no, you're your own unit. But to honor your parents, to listen to them, to regard them, to say, I love you, I, I appreciate you, but this is the decision we're making for our home, that sort of a thing, that never goes away. And the Bible says there is a divine, there is a spiritual blessing for honoring your parents. And it's something that we ought to teach our children. And it, it, we should not teach it as a manipulation tool. You know, this is something that the church has done for years with children. Uh, the, the, the idea if, if that uh, we, we hold over their head God's judgment as a means by which to manipulate them into, into obeying. 
Well, no, it's not that. Number one, don't appeal to these verses with children that are not believers. The idea that, that, um, that they should somehow care what God thinks when they're not a believer. Uh, let, let's, let's, stay, stick to the, let's stick to the gospel with them. Get them saved. And then once they're there, say, now this is what God expects of you. This is what God asks of you. There are two obedient songs I sing with my children after chastening. Uh, one of them is, it goes, I will obey the first time I'm told. My children are young, so they, <laughs> like th- 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 this helps, um, this helps, <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> uh, it helps reorient their minds because at the end of discipline, I don't want them to leave angry and I don't, uh, and, and I don't want them to leave resentful. So to remind them that dad, that dad's not still angry, that, that, that this is not an anger thing, that this is just a justice thing, I keep it light. Of course, it's not light when they're uh, being chastened, but I keep it light afterwards. So I sing that song. But there's a second song, but I only sing it with my girls that are saved. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Doing exactly what the Lord commands, doing it happily. So I sing that one to the ones that have believed. Because I don't want to tell my, my son that the best way to show that you believe is obedience when he doesn't believe yet, right? So I sing with him the other obedience song. And then I sing with my girls and I dance with them and they're all angry and then they dance and at some point you know, they start to giggle and, and whatnot. And, and, and it, it helps to remind them that dad loves them, that we're good now. Discipline is about reconciliation. If your children have not left discipline feeling as though they're right with you again, then you didn't discipline properly. That's the point of discipline. Discipline is there's broken fellowship and this is the means by which we restore fellowship. And that's such an essential part of discipline. That's why God disciplines us. He disciplines us back into fellowship. That, that chastening hand of the Lord. And we chasten back into fellowship. And then, you know, the singing is the way that I remind my children that we're in fellowship. Uh, that, that, that all is good. But, but there's a, a little bit of a distinction there. Um, I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because we were talking about obedience, right? Um, so obedience is a way to show that you believe. But, and, and I stress that with my believing children. Uh, before that, they're expected to obey still uh, as a means of discipline. But we don't appeal to obeying for the sake of the Lord until they know the Lord. But at that point, that is why. That is why they obey. They obey for the Lord's sake. They obey because there's a blessing of the Lord that's given to those that obey. And you want the Lord's blessing. You don't want to lose that. It's not worth it. Um growing into maturity and leading the next generation into godliness. So we talked about the young women in Titus chapter 2. The young men as well are spoken of in Titus 2. Verse 6, Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, in all things showing a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Men that are not ashamed of the word of God, men that are not ashamed to stand on it, men that have been trained to stand on it, men that know what it is to stand on the word of God, and men that are, are, are not cowards. We have, you know, in, in every element of society today, we're raising our men to be cowards. And in the physical sense, we don't want to raise our men to be cowards. But in the spiritual sense, we don't want to raise our men to be cowards either. Our men should not cower from spiritual contention. Our men should not cower from the need. I had a, a young man call me the other day. Uh, I led him to the Lord about three years ago. He was uh, just gotten out of the army, 22 years old, alcoholic. 
Um, his parents asked me to speak with him. He said he was a Christian, so I sat him down and I said, you said you're, you're a Christian, yes? Well, then why aren't you acting like it? And, um, and it, it hit him like a ton of bricks and he realized he was not a believer, got saved, life changed dramatically. Now he's in college, he's uh, getting ready to go to med school, he's in pre-med right now. And he called me up and he said, so I'm the vice, uh, I, I got a job as an assistant to some sort of diversity something at the school. And he said, and they're requiring me to go to the gay pride parade and to march in it because he's a part of this diversity group. And what do I do? And so we talked through it. And uh, we talked through the fact that this is going to be a challenge, but that he has to say, I'm not willing to support this. I'm, I, I'm you know, that, that um, I, don't think, I don't think negatively of, of people. You know, this is not that I'm against homosexuals, that I think that they are something wrong, you know, but, but that they are doing something that I cannot support. And, um, and he, he called me because he had some other people telling him, well, just do it. Just, you know, just do it and get over it and be, be fine. Well, um, he, does, he, 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 uh, he feels compelled to have the courage to speak up for what's right. And that's what we need to be teaching our young people to do, is to have the, the courage and the understanding to stand up for what's right and to not be violent or vitriolic or, or, or nasty about it, you know, to not, to not be vicious and, and to, to, to judge people and to hate people, but to stand up and say, this is what's right, and I'm going to stand for what's right, and I don't care if you laugh. I don't care if you scorn. Will you hear about that school that's suspended students if they walk out for that gun thing? Mm. There was a school, I can't remember where it was, that was like, if you walk out of class, you will be suspended for leaving class. Standing up for what's right. Yep. When they just had the opposite. Yeah. Where right. Teachers supported. And they and they almost they almost demanded yeah. that that people walk out for for the anti-gun one, they were right? Even doing it to my daughter's school, mm. you know, the elementary schools. The kids don't even know what they're walking out of class for. Yeah. Yeah. And to have young men who we teach that that there's nothing that's worth. Um, faltering in your principles uh, and the principles of the word of God you stand on those and you make sure that you support them in that 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 if, if, if they end up suspended from school because they've stood up for what's right now again not in a violent evil hateful uh, disruptive way right but if they have just stood for what's right and unwilling to participate in that which is wrong and there's a consequence you support them in that and we we, we, we raise men no, I was saying the school was suspending the people who did walk out. Well, right. And, and, and in that case, you, you support your child, yeah. right? Um, and you allow him to do the walkout. Now, again, you, you'd have to decide whether guns is a, is, is a worthy cause for a suspension, right? Because that's not... There, there, there's a biblical principle sure. deeper underlying, but the, then there's a constitutional principle. But particularly when it comes to biblical principles and teaching our young people... Um, the, 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 one of the greatest powers that the world uses against the church is shame. That the, that the world shames the people of the church, not even into to changing their mind, but just to being quiet. Yeah. They just shame them into being quiet and just sitting in the background and not, not speaking up. And what we need are men who are going to stand up and say, absolutely not. And you'll find that when men stand up and say, absolutely not, there's a silent majority there that is on board. That oftentimes comes up afterwards, as Greg was saying last week, and says, hey, you know, well, I, in his case, there's a bit of an opposite. I'm in support sort of, of this, it, but, but I'm not willing to bear any consequence for such support. Right, exactly. And, um, and that's fine. Teach your, teach your young men and women to be the ones that'll bear, that, that, that'll take it. 
that'll bear the consequence. Um, because that's what we need in the church. We need courage. We need men and women that are willing to stand up and say, this is wrong, and we are not going to bow to this. Because the word of God, thus saith the Lord, and if we allow the word of God to be perverted, then we've lost everything. We've lost everything. Unity at the expense of truth is death to the church. Well, it's a big uphill battle. I mean, the teacher of the year is a transvestite. Are you, you serious? Man? Yeah. Mm. No, it's brand new. <laughs> this is last weekend. Yeah. Teacher of what? <laughs> <laughs> it is an uphill battle. And the education system is lost, which is why, you know, Greg was saying last week, the idea of, of placing our children underneath it's becoming harder and harder to justify, and it has been for some time, really, um, placing our children in indoctrination centers. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's really what they've become, is indoctrination centers. Uh, and it's, it's, it's very difficult for a, young, for a child in particular who is not trained up in the Word of God and not strong in the Word of God to stand. Uh, the question I have for you is, yes, sir. where do they get the leverage to attain that kind of power because it, you know Minneapolis mm -hmm. is 15% gay or whatever but they're in control of uh, the government center yeah. well the yeah. silent majority the idea of the silent majority right this hap this is how this is how Russia fell to communism the bolshevik revolution was a, a very a, 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 a minority in their government but they were the, the but the silent majority stayed silent and there was an overthrow um, this is not uncommon that people on in the right stay silent and do not speak up as far as the education system goes one of the uh, evil is very evil is is really good at the long game and so back in the day um, and I think we mentioned this briefly last week back in the day uh, all of the universities appointed as heads of their universities uh, effectively communists people that wanted the breakdown of the family that wanted government to be God. And so now the universities are filled with these people. And then as, um, and, 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 but it didn't really touch society nearly as much because schools were local, localized. But then as federalism takes over, and now we have the, uh, the national school associations and we have this, the, the teachers union, right? And the teachers union is so powerful in our, in our, te in our schools today and it's all federalized. And so as the, the local communities lose power and, and as all of our teachers are being sent off to these institutions, which have been havens of evil for generations now, the, higher, the institutions of higher learning, they've been havens of evil for, for generations. And so now they're going to these havens of evil to learn how to teach. And then they're coming back to our communities and the communities don't know what these teachers are teaching until it's too late. Well, it's not how to teach, it's what to teach. It's what to teach, exactly. That's what they're teaching them, what to teach, not how to teach. And so the, as the farther and farther our communities get away from their schools and our schools become more government run, the farther and farther, the, the deeper and deeper we're going to see the schools be a propaganda outlet for the state. Well, and run by women. Right, and we talked and about that last week. schools are just, there's no men in the leadership no. anymore. No, and... I mean, even like, okay, even... Even uh, so, my business partner Mike, his wife, mm. she's the she's the principal of a Catholic school. Mm. It's, I mean, she's very smart. She's she's a very leader type, but uh, all uh, women. And you're absolutely right. You know, and so so these 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 children, they 
go to school, they spend 40 hours of their week surrounded almost exclusively by women. Counselors are women, and you know, there's men in the system, obviously, but uh, there, there's, there, it's dominated by women, especially at the, especially at the younger. Well, even go back yes, in, that too. in my day, the school teachers were women. Mm-hmm. I mean, predominantly women. Yes, absolutely. And uh, especially at the lower levels. You know, as it used to be that at the college level, predominantly men. Even at the high school level, predominantly men, and then women as you got lower. Because they could tolerate more of the the younger kids. My best teachers ever were all men, though. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah, mine too. And, And that's coming from a man's perspective, right? Because women teach in the way they understand, which means they teach the way women learn, which we talked about a little bit last week as well children to become more like women. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do you think that that has had an effect on creating all this sexual confusion? Um, or do you think it's more the... Uh... Well, I, I wonder... I mean, Minnesota happens to be extremely liberal. Yes, yeah. absolutely. You know, predominantly with a very, very strong, strong liberal gay community. In the world, you know. so, I, so I kind of wonder if we're, we're not in kind of a little bubble yeah as far as the sexual confusion thing um number one i'd say it's probably it is it is a lack of male role models um as especially with men because there's a in in all of these tendencies the sexual confusion is far heavily weighted toward men um as far as homosexuality transgenderism it's heavily weighted toward men and a lot of this is lack of male role models and then of course it's also the romans one idea that as a, as a society gets away from God, everything gets turned on its head, and they reject it, right? So there's a, there's a two-fold idea there. Um, but the, the sexual confusion is a symptom of the cause, and until we, re, until we have a society that's reinvigorated in an appreciation of, of biblical masculinity and the roles, gender roles in society, we're going to see confusion continue. Um, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. I mean, Paul says women are more easily deceived. Yes. And a lot of the, the stuff that they pushed even 20 years ago sounded re- somewhat reasonable, right? We just want you to tolerate us. And people said, well, we don't, we're not into telling you what to do. You can do your own thing. We don't agree with it, but we're not going to punish you for doing it, right? And then it just gobbles more and more ground and said that they didn't want to be tolerated. They want to be accepted. Right. And now it's to the point they want to be celebrated. And they want to, and they, they won't allow, they won't allow dissent, right? right. They, they, they want to be, they, they demand to be accepted and celebrated. They demand to be celebrated. Okay, so I got yeah. a question for you. I don't want to, obviously I don't want to be supportive, but I got an employee. He's a, he's a pretty uh, key guy. Greg knows who I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Okay. And, uh, and we have a Christmas party every year. Of course, the Christmas party says, come to the Christmas party. It's a nice dinner. Bring your spouse. If you've got a spouse, I think I should change that language a little bit. Or, I mean, I'm tr- trying to figure, or do I just be like, you know, if you want to bring your Isaac friend or whatever you want to call it, like, go go for it. I wouldn't change you. Um, the idea that you, you know, certainly, yeah, if you want to bring him, bring him. That's fine. But I wouldn't change the language. Um, I was going to say, change the language and say... <laughs> If you are married, bring your husband or wife. But then I'm like, well, wait a minute, we're in Minnesota. <laughs> right. Uh, I, you know, I, 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 
Or do I just say, you know what? Yeah, I would say, I, I, I would say just don't fight the battle. You know, one of the important things that um, the scriptures tell us, in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul is writing to the church, and the church was having a problem. There was a man in the church who was having a, a sexual relationship with effectively what we understand to be his mother-in-law. And um, Paul says this is absolutely wrong. And he says that, um, that they are allowing things in the church that even the heathen around them would consider distasteful. And at the end of that, that chapter, he says, So I wrote unto you not to company with fornicators. That would be people that are into sexual sin. He says, But not altogether the fornicators of this world, or else you'd have to come out of this world. But I wrote unto you that if any man who is called a brother be a fornicator, that you come out from him, that you do not fellowship with him. For what have we to judge them that are without? Them that are without, God judges. But them that are within, we judge. The idea being there, if he calls himself a believer, then we have the right to look at him and say, you're doing absolutely wrong. If they're an unbeliever, what do you expect? I mean, they're, they're not, they, they are not submitted to the law of God. I should not expect them to live by that. Now again, if you have, uh, uh, um, that doesn't mean you need to celebrate. celebrate it or put yourself in the line of fire. But to say that you change the language in order to express your displeasure or your 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 discomfort, I would kind of say fruitless. would be fruitless, yeah. and and might do more to offend unnecessarily yeah. than anything two else. One for believers, one for <laughs> well, and, and one for believers. We'll have a holiday and party and a Christmas party. <laughs> yeah, right. And and what you find is you as you as you go deeper down as you, as you, as you go deeper down the rabbit hole of Christ is that the level of fellowship among those that are not in Christ, there's just a, there's a whole, if, if you are committed to Christ and you're living it out in your life, number one, unbelievers are not going to want to hang out nearly as much because Christ comes into it. Number two, um, there's a whole area of your life that you, that you just can't relate to each other on. And there's going to be a natural distance to where it might be that uh, there's going to end up being two parties. One that where you can truly celebrate Christ. One that's and paid the, for. Uh, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it's well, a potluck. <laughs> the other one's a potluck. <laughs> you, you, you got you to get the language to get by the HR attorneys. Yeah, right. And, mm-hmm. And it's adding confusion where confusion isn't even a thought. So another, I had a, I had a, um, I, re, I remember it very, very, uh, very well. Seventh grade, my first year in junior high, they call us down to an assembly, and there was a skit that some people put on, where a person finds out that they're gay and they're wrestling with this. And in seventh grade, the thoughts going through your mind is, I wonder if I'm that too. Because the idea is this person didn't even know they were gay and all of a sudden they found out that they had same-sex attraction. And it creates this confusion. Uh, I saw a thing online the other day that this lady was like, this is what my second, my second graders are learning. And it was all of these you know, in intersectional words. Uh, um, uh, what is a trans person? What is, a, a, um, a, what is bi? What is this? What is that? And they were learning the definitions. And you talk about adding confusion. It's creating, it's creating confusion. 
Absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they don't want to be alone. Yep. So they get to recruit, they can't reproduce. Connor's psychology class, they had a guest. No, I mean, it's true, though. Yeah, we had a professor who, uh, uh, well, it wasn't she, it was, uh, X. Oh, a Z? Z. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Um, and she talked about it, um, and how bad the governments are in the states that don't allow anything. Right. All that kind of stuff, and how... Well, so it's also interesting. Oh, well, yeah. So now that's an acceptable yeah. topic right. to talk about well, in yeah, she's a, a psychology class. No What's right. a Z? A Z? Z. Yeah. X-E. Z and Zer. As their preferred pronouns. Z. Z and Zer. What does that mean? It means that they're, they're, um, they're gender fluid. Uh, that they that they don't they don't they don't claim the particularities of any gender. Oh, they're so gender it's a, fluid. It's a, it's a it's, it's it's in replacement of Mr. Mrs. Miss. Yes, yeah. Z and Zer. Those are Z. their preferred pronouns, <laughs> and they 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 get very offended if you don't use their preferred pronouns. And so if you call them a her because she's got long hair and all of the women parts, then she gets extremely offended because I'm not a her. I'm a Z and I'm a I'm a Zer. Wait, so when you're talking about this person, you'd say, oh, I was. Uh, talking with Zer. Zer. Yeah, and if you don't say that, then, then if you don't say that, then you're you're a bigot. Yeah, yeah. And that you're hateful. And and for and and they they actually in Canada, if you don't use people's preferred pronouns in certain places in Canada, it's hate speech. Well, my guides better not be Z's. No. <laughs> no, or, or or they're out of the boat, right? right. <laughs> I, I might be less careful with my casting. <laughs> oh, did I hook you again? So, so we are in a tough spot. And what's going to happen is that, that what, what you're going to see is you're going to see culture and society crumble underneath us. Because society cannot sustain this confusion. Canada's talking about passing law that you can remove a child from the yes. home if the parents... Refuse to transition them. Yep. Didn't they actually pass it? And so these children at age three or four are saying, I feel like a girl, and they're starting to put them on hormones yeah. to block puberty so and fun. mutilating their bodies, which is just child abuse. It's child it abuse. It is child abuse. And there's also studies that show so many of them. Over 60%. After they, well, yeah, after they get to a certain age, they change their mind. Yep. And they're like, no, I'm actually. Over 60% of people that claim transgenderism revert back, which is just, in, I mean, the, the, the statistics are insane. So anyway, if, if you're wondering why the church in various cultures and in various times in history has almost become a community in and of itself where they close themselves off and they create compounds and they live within the almost cloisters. Woo, compounds! <laughs> th th this is why. You know, it sounds very cultish, but could you, could you imagine uh, that, that, and, and this is kind of where the homeschool community is in some degree that they rally around each other and that's their interaction and whatnot. Now, if we're, if we're completely out of the world, then we can't win the world. So we need to be careful. But at the same time, the world is going in such a different direction that it's getting to the point, And it wasn't this way before in, in, in American culture. So we're going to have to come to this, this crisis point where things are going to have to, I mean, decisions are going to have to be made, but it's getting to the point where there's so little relationship between culture and our understanding and appreciation for the Word of God that there can be no agreement anymore. And we're already seeing that, that, uh, you know, if in Canada, some of the things I say from the pulpit, I could be thrown in prison for. Um, and of course, in, in Europe, Europe, the cult culture is collapsing, the society is collapsing.
um, various places around the world for a long time it's been this way. This is why we need to raise the next generation to be bold, to know what they believe, to stand on it for the right reasons. Not because mom and dad said so, not because the church said so, not because pastor said so, not because it's tradition. Those are all the ways that we have the church that we have now. Because as soon as tradition hits, well, this is what so-and-so, see, see, they're, they're under the teaching of a pastor for an hour or two a week, and they're under the teaching of their zers and zs in school for 40 hours a week. See, but the nature of con- be- being conservative in your nature is that you're conservative. So you're not loud and outright, and you're not out there telling people to mm-hmm. shut up. Oh, and- no, no, that's not fair. For many years, conservatives killed the other side. I mean, the whole Inquisition was conservatives killing the liberals. Luther was presenting liberalism, a change in the status quo or the values. But see, I, I would I would say that I mean think about conservatives today generally are the people. Yeah, but that, but what I'm saying is is the word as a descriptor sure. is two independent things, Fair. not one thing describing right. both. But then but then but then okay, so you take people who are conservative in their nature. Generally, they're the people who are the uh, a lot of times live like, and let for, live. For 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 me, like I can't be super loud about being a conservative because I got a bunch of liberal customers, mm-hmm. yeah. and the liberals that. Man, they'll they'll go to the grave fighting. They're yeah. like they're they don't they'll lose their job. They don't care. They're like screw you. No, then they sue. And then they, yeah, they then care. They get, they they get sue. Nat- they silence you. But I'm what, right. what I'm saying is like I'm obviously concerned about sharing my public my like my views anywhere because these li- the liberals they don't give a crap. Versus conservative or liberal, what I would say is that evil always seeks to silence. Yes, good. truth. Always. Yep. Whether it's in Nazi Germany or communist Russia or, or sub-Saharan Africa, always. Because you don't want truth to exist in, in darkness at all, right? Where, where there's truth, people will come to it. The only way to stop truth is to silence truth. Right. It's the only way because truth is truth and it's self-validating. And they silence it by attacking. Yes. Right. And see, and, so and, and fortunately, unfortunately, whatever yes. you want, and in to every way, say it. The challenge with our faith is, is we're not allowed to attack them first, physically, right? So I mean, we we end up in this spot in basically ever every culture we've yep. ever existed in. Yep, and, and it's, we got attacked in the Roman Empire, yep. and then we got good there, and then we went to broader Europe, and then got attacked out of there, and then we went to the New World, and we were good there for a couple hundred years, and now we're getting attacked here. And it is what it is. Marvel not, Jesus said, if the world hate you. Right. Know that if they hated you, they hated me first. They killed him. Because he, he for, for nothing but truth, they right. killed him. Should we expect anything else than that they are going to come after us to silence us in any way possible when we exhibit truth? And, and really the breakdown, how it got as bad as fast, was previous generations didn't do their job to say, I'm not going to send the kids to the school because right. I'm starting to see these problems. Well, and they pursued other things instead of that. Yeah. And and well, and and the 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 cultural revolution, which was a lead up from a lot of other problems, um, brought about a time of rebellion, right? And that re- rebellion was was not handled well, particularly by the church. Um, the church, instead of encouraging in the '60s and '70s, encouraging children not to rebel. They instead accommodated their rebellion, and that's actually how youth group got started. Um, youth groups was these kids rejected their parents' churches and their parents' values, and so they said, we're not going to church anymore, and they said, how can we get this next generation who's rejected their parents' values 
back into church. Well, let's create a church inside the church called Youth Group. That's more fun. And that's it's more like fun. And we'll attract them this way. And again, many people have been saved in Youth Group. Praise God for that. But what it did is it accommodated children's rebellion instead of looking at those children and say, you want to be right with God? Submit yourself. Obey your parents. Honor your parents. Quit the rebellion because you can't be rebellious and serve God at the same time. And, and once again, this is, this is why the model of church we have is what we have. Uh, again, I'm not saying that youth group can't be effective. I'm not saying that, that it hasn't changed your life, and, and if it did, praise God for that. But what I'm saying is, it was built on a, found, uh, on a flawed foundation, and the church has not handled well cultural um, problems because the church has gotten lazy and ap apathetic because culture for so many years was on their side. And, uh, and then when it stopped being on our side, we didn't know how to handle it. And we're still trying to catch up. Well, if excuse me, I've got to go cleave to my wife. Okay. Thanks She'll for coming, John. very pleased to uh, read this. I'll sure. be anxious. To... All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. we'll get your report in a week at Canada. <laughs> Fortunately, it's just the Bible, right? So if she gets angry, you can just say... <laughs> no, no, no. She'll, she'll... Oh, good. Good. Then, All right, uh... Sounds good, Chuck. We'll see you. Drive <laughs> safe. So, um, yeah, we're in a bad place today. But the only way that we can turn this around is by raising up a generation of bold believers who are willing to stand upon their faith and then letting the Holy Spirit do His work. Every revival, every time a culture has ever changed, it's been, obviously, the work of the Holy Spirit working in a culture, great revivals, through bold men who are willing to stand up and proclaim the truth. And that's what we need to be raising. Bold men, women who are ready to support those men, bold men ready to stand upon the truth, so that when God calls upon them to, to stand up and to speak up, they do it. And they're not ashamed. And they're not afraid of the consequences. Paul was beaten. He was stoned and left for dead. They stoned, in, in, in Antioch uh, and Lystra, they, uh, Iconium and Lystra, excuse me. They, 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 he went to Iconium. They chased him out of the city. He went to Lystra. They chased him to that city. They worked the people up. They stoned him, threw him out of the city for dead. And the Bible says he got up and he went to the next city. Uh, he, he, was, uh, he was maimed, he was spat upon. There were several places where he was run out of town, but he was bold in his witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was willing. He says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. He could say, yep, that scar was when I preached that time. Yeah, this is, the, the, yeah, you see this big gash on the head? That was, you know, we, we, we brag about our scars from our hunting expeditions and fishing. Yeah, that was when the hook, hook caught me. You know, but, but, but we, we don't... Do any of us have the, the, the scars of the, the battle for Christ? And, and physically, of course, we're not going to be too scarred in this culture for battling for Christ because we still have freedoms, the First Amendment, praise God. But do and we... Second. And the second, that's right. <laughs> but do we, bear in our, do we bear in our body, do we bear in our spirits, do we bear the marks of the fight? And again, Charles, that doesn't mean that you have to bring it into business in that sense. Yeah. You don't have to go up to your clients and say, by the way, right. I believe this. But the idea that you live the principles. I just feel like it's so much, it would be so much better if the conservatives in general were as loud and as powerful, yet our way of convincing culture of the real truth, uh, the, you know, I guess being more forward about it. But the problem mm. is that I feel like we all... <laughs> in general have more to lose <laughs> for doing so yeah and we need a generation of men not not afraid to lose it 
if we're gonna have if we're gonna have a, a generation of men that and, and this is where certain men called out like pastors who are not afraid to get up there and of course again in our generation at this time the the suffering is minimal right I get it from behind my pulpit and I say what needs to be said and I'm not people aren't throwing things at me and whatnot but um but we need to at least be be men willing if the Lord would call on us to do so to, to, to do so um, like this young man that I counseled when he's gonna go up and tell his boss he cannot support this gay pride parade I told him I said and in doing so you need to be ready to lose your job but this is what I know that Jesus said Take no thought for the morrow, so the, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, speaking of food and raiment, material support, will be added unto you. Can I trust that if I seek Christ first, if I do what's right by him, God will take care of me? I was at Target Field last week doing a show for 25,000 people in the stadium for this big heart walk. And leading up to the actual event, there's all this music we play in the concourse. And the music the client provided me, of course, is just a bunch of garbage. Mm. And, I, and I thought, you know, even if I just squeeze one of my songs in there, <laughs> I'm going to do it. And so she, she disappeared for a little bit. And I was like, if I'm going to play it, it's got to be while she's up in the booth with me where I can turn the audio down so she's not out walking around. So she well, comes back in and I turn the song on. And it's it's one of the songs from my church, and it's it fits in with the genre. I mean, it feels you know current, and uh, and I'm sitting there, and they turn up the volume because they're like, we just want to check on what's going on. And so I started talking really loud at her. And she didn't know why. <laughs> she looked at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> it was only for this one little like three second spot, but holy smokes. That was fun. That was just my one little way of getting a little edge in. And there's always opportunities. So maybe you can't do it at work. And that's not the right form. And that's fine. Although you, you don't compromise your principles, right? So you live out who you are at work. You, you bear the gospel in your actions and your integrity. And then maybe you you go somewhere on the weekend I, I know a man who um he, he really enjoys creation science so his day job is i don't know he, he's i don't even know what he does for his day job but every once in a while he'll go up to st cloud state and they give him a forum and he he speaks on creation and he allows anyone to come and he speaks about how he believes that the earth was created in six literal days and six thousand years ago and he gives the evidence and these sorts of things and this is his means by which to to reach out to a, a group of young people who may not otherwise have a good forum for this and to to use the talents and the interests that he has for the Lord. Mm. And uh, we, we all should be looking for means, whether in the church or out of the church, to do, to do exactly that. And to um, and then to bring our children along and help them see that this is what men do. That, that as, as we encourage our children to be courageous and to be... To, to be strong, that we also show them that we honor our wives and that we're gentle with our wives, and we also show them that we're courageous for the Lord, that we're not afraid to take a little scorning by giving someone a tract as we're walking down the street, or the lady at the, at the grocery say, hey, could you, would you be willing to read this? Allow your child to see your boldness for the Lord. 
to see that you're actually that 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 that, that you you want to play your part, that you're ready to to stand up for him, and stand and and, and that uh, your children see when you stand up for the Lord in your home, when you're watching a movie and you you know this is this this was not a good idea and so you stand up and you turn it off and you say this movie is not what we're going to have in our home and you're bold and courageous and then you say because the lord has told us this and this is just not right and you lead your home just stand up and, and be a leader and your, your 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 young men see that and they know what it is to be courageous not just in a physical way but in a spiritual way Um, there were the last few things here um, that I talk about is uh, the purpose of the Christian family, companionship, relationship, training, protection, generational godliness, care of children in youth and parents in age, um, the idea that children are to be cared for in their youth, and we as, we and then children have the have the expectation and obligation of caring for their parents in their old age. Um, we see that in the widow idea that we already talked about. We see it in Proverbs 23, 22. Hearken unto thy father that beget thee and despise not thy mother when she is old. Don't reject her when she's old. Take care of her. Um, but your job is to protect your children as well. And uh, it's not just to protect your children physically. You put a fence around your yard. Tell them not to talk to strangers. But what are you doing to guard your children's hearts? Um, if you find out that they're in a health class, in a public school, you go and you figure out what the curriculum is. You ask for the curriculum. You monitor every day that they have health class. You come home and say, what did they tell you today? And you don't let them go play video games until you know what they taught. Um, science classes, ask them about it. My, my, my parents had to do a lot of that when I was younger. Of What did you learn today? I learned this. Okay, that's wrong. <laughs> Um, we, we need to protect our children spiritually. If you can't do that, then I would encourage you to change the, the um, context of your children's education to, to protect them spiritually. Your children are your most valuable asset and they are the most valuable asset of the next generation and they're just not worth playing with. Now, again, I'm not telling you any of these things so that if you're, if you're not doing these things, you're, you're wrong, you're, you're doing it wrong. I'm not trying to say any of that. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty or anything of the sort. But this, when we talk about the Word of God, that it's frontless before our eyes, that, it, that, that, that we present our bodies a living sacrifice, the fact of the matter is God's Word is supposed to be life. That this life is, is just this life, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, and then we have an eternity of what we did in this life for Christ to show for it, which means it should probably be a bit of a priority for us if we believe that to be true, and if our children are the next generation of the church, the next generation of this society, and if our children are our responsibility before the Lord, then it would behoove us to treat that responsibility as such. And if our wives are our responsibility, so that we will stand before the Lord and we will answer for them, and for how we treated them and loved them, then it would behoove us to love them. And it would behoove us to teach them how to align themselves with God, and how to be right. Okay, I think we'll go ahead and stop there at uh, just about 9 o'clock. So uh, I took my 45 minutes back. Um, well done. Any, any final thoughts? Thank you, men, for your time. And uh, I wanted this class to kind of be that next step 
We learned about what the Bible's about. Now let's learn about how to relate ourselves to it. As always, if you have any questions, need follow-up, need any tips, help, uh, any of those things, I'd love to be able to continue to be that for you. You've all got my contact info. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And the apple cobbler just made it up here. What's that?